there, Julie. Hi, Connor. How are you? I'm doing well. Much better than I was at uh, the end of the last semester there. Yeah, same. Very much, very much same. We've had a lot of changes in Connor and I's lives, I would say, uh, in the past few months, which is probably why we haven't been recording very often. Connor passed his PhD qualifying exam, and I finished my master's and graduated, so, and started a PhD. So we are in new stage, in new stages of our academic lives and back at it. Back at the, back at the academic grind. Back at the academic grind and the podcasting grind. (laughs) To be sure. Did you know the academic grind, Julie, is the name of the little coffee shop in Old Father Hall on downtown campus? I always thought that was pretty funny. (laughs) That's cute. I like that. Nice. So, Um, yes. We are back for season two of What the Heck is Resilience Anyway, WHRA. Absolutely. Or at least we're calling this season two. We've, uh, at this stage of the game, started to switch gears a bit. We've hit a lot of the important concepts in resilience theory. And to take it to the next level, our idea is to move forward with applying resilience. We're going to go ahead and start with that by talking about quantifying resilience, which is something of a bridge between resilience concepts and resilience application, because quantification has been a problem historically in in resilience theory, as we're going to get to in just a second. Sweet. Well, let's get right into it. Perfect. Today, we're going to talk about quantifying resilience. There's been a academic debate over the years, and we've covered this in a couple different episodes of the podcast over whether resilience can be quantified, and if so, how could we do it? And another way of describing this debate is, is, is resilience ultimately more useful as a way of thinking, or is it something that we can measure? And this has popped up in the academic literature a few times. One, art, uh, one part paper that I think is pretty good at describing the, the debate is an editorial in the Journal of Applied Ecology by David Engler and Craig Allen in 2016. They describe how operationalizing resilience has uh, been difficult, especially for the purposes of application management, actually using the idea of resilience. Resilience as a term is often misused or used in a very normative sense. We've just talked quite a bit about that on the podcast, but it just... As a a reminder, it's important to remember that resilience is not inherently a good thing or a bad thing. It's an emergent property in a system. We often think of it as a good thing, but it could be a bad thing. It it could be something that we desire. It ultimately is just a thing. It just is. Many ecological resilience frameworks are vague and difficult to quantify, although Engler and Allen assert progress has been made to address this, at least up to 2016 when this article was written. But as we're going to talk about later in this episode, I think progress has been continue, has continued to be made in this area. Engler and Allen point out that in order to be useful for managers or other people who would want to actually apply resilience to whatever work they happen to be doing, there needs to be concrete guidance for how and what to manage and how to measure success. Resilience thinking as a concept is useful for helping stakeholders to conceptualize these social ecological systems, but ultimately it's too ambiguous to actually manage ecosystems with. And that's where we get into the idea of quantifying resilience. So I'm going to let Julie take over now as a foundational paper for actually quantifying resilience. Yeah, thank you so much. 
yeah, so like Connor said, quantifying resilience is not a new idea by any stretch of the imagination, but it is really an ongoing process of figuring out how we want to relate to resilience as either a framework or as sort of a, a math-heavy method of quantification for this framework. And it's difficult to say when some of these ideas first started emerging, if, it's, if it came about right when resilience came about as well, or if it was a sort of this idea of quantification was a later addition uh, sort of to ecological resilience in general. But one paper I found that seems to be one of the earlier examples of sort of deliberate, deliberate discussing this idea and sort of attempting it in a small way was from uh, Metaphor to Measurement, Resilience of What to What, which is a paper by Steve Carpenter, who we spoke about before in some of those um, alternative stable states of Utrecht Lakes work earlier in the podcast. You remember that name? Then also Brian Walker and J. uh, Marty Andares, as well as Nick Abel. So four authors, and it was published in 2001 in the journal Ecosystems. So they basically start out saying that measurable quantitative definitions of resilience would really open new and important pathways for testable hypotheses specifically related to the adaptive cycle. So they're really focusing heavily on the adaptive cycle um, and to sort of use individual measurements to see where a system might be within that adaptive cycle and sort of where it is in that resilience journey. And so they say that to interpret the dynamics of a particular system in terms of this adaptive cycle metaphor, um, and so they can try to understand the overall resilience of the system, they want to begin by clearly defining resilience in terms of of what to what. So it's a phrase that they often use. Different aspects of the system might change depending on temporal, social, and spatial scale at which the measurement is made. And a social ecological system can be resilient at one time scale because the technology is adopted. Uh, they go on to use as an example earlier on, early on in the writing uh, regarding iron axes, like the tool, like the human tool. Um, yeah, and they say that sort of iron axes probably helped emerging agricultural societies to persist over a particular span of time because they enabled their possessors to clear more forests and grow more food. But at a longer time scale, once some threshold of forest cover has been crossed, um, following like could no longer maintain maintain soil fertility and the resilience of the system was compromised. So basically, they're saying that temporal and spatial scale and the heterogeneity of the system matter greatly, um, <laughs> and that it's necessary then for us to start taking individual measurements that pertain to, to what we're interested in in the system within the context of the adaptive cycle to see where an ecological or social ecological system is within that adaptive cycle. So it's sort of an interesting integration of a lot of what we've discussed before, and you can sort of see the, the thoughts that they were having in 2001 when they sort of put this together. And so they say that the purpose of this paper is to explore the possibilities and the limitations of measurable operational definitions of resilience for social ecological systems. So that's sort of their fancy way of saying, what should we measure in order to figure out how the systems we're interested in are doing? They do this through two case studies, and I'll just go through both really briefly, and that's basically the paper in and of itself. So. They looked at one lake region in the United States, which makes sense with Steve Carpenter. And then they also look at a rangeland system in Australia. And they developed sort of useful resilience measures for each. Um, Again, highlighting local knowledge and spatial and temporal scales. So first, let's look at the, get a little bit of background of the lake regions. We probably already have covered this a bit with alternative stable states, but the lake districts of the Great Lakes regions of North America um, encompass productive farmlands as well as thousands of lakes. Um, and these eco- the, these ecosystems provide ecosystem services, including, you know, obviously agricultural production, freshwater used for irrigation, 
municipal water supplies, pollution, dilution, recreation, um, as well as like sport fisheries. So recreation um, and things like hunting, other, you know, related ecosystem services. Um, but some of these services are in conflict with one another. So agricultural and aquatic ecosystem services um, might sort of butt heads because agriculture generates nutrient runoff that causes the eutrophication of lakes, which leads to higher costs for water treatment, fish kills, and loss of recreational benefits. Uh, specifically, this is caused by, like we've mentioned, phosphorus leading to that eutrophication. So this fertilizer that is used in the surrounding agricultural uh, spaces has really heavy phosphorus fertilizer loading. And then that through rain and different runoff mechanisms will go into the lake and cause it to get, you know, too many nutrients, shift into eutroph state, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So some of these ecosystem services are very much at odds. Um, and so in this particular example, the two states of these lakes, the clear water or oligotrophic state and the turbid water or eutrophic state. Both states can be resilient. This is something that Connor mentioned in our sort of concept introduction is that resilience is not necessarily a good thing. It can be very difficult to change that turbid water lake state back to the clear state. That is a highly resilient system, but a very negative one in this case. So for a lake in the clear water state, the challenges for managers is to increase or maintain the resilience of that clear water state. Um, and then for lakes in the turbid state, the challenge is to break down the resilience of that turbid state or to shift the lake into a clear water state. This paper, they focus mainly on the resilience of the clear water state. And then so let's get a quick background on the rangeland system in Australia, their other case study. So rangelands in general are social, social ecological systems in semi-arid regions where the native vegetation sustains extensive grazing and browsing by domestic livestock. Um, and in the rangelands of Western New South Wales and Australia, the major ecosystem service since the late 19th century, when Aboriginal people were originally displaced by uh, pastoralists, has been wool production based on grazing by sheep uh, with limited use of sort of woody browsing. And so in this paper, they considered the resilience of the wool production system um, and rather more broadly, the resilience of pastoralism of all kinds to broad scale economic and climate changes that affect this region. The wool industry is, often, is also really heavily subsidized by local, federal, and international actors. And so it by itself is not a particularly independently resilient system, mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. it is a very financially important one for the region. And biophysically, resilience at the local level is really dependent on the ability of the landscape to maintain infiltration, water storage capacity, and nutrient cycling, all of which are sort of threatened by soil loss and other like structural changes in the landscape. And so an inherently resilient pastoral property would therefore contain soils that are physically resistant to change, despite this really heavy grazing pressure that is on these rangelands due to that, you know, raising sheep for, for wool production. There's also sort of the requirement as something we've discussed extensively before of uh, fire in the system to help maintain these healthy grasslands and that that can often be at odds with the people living on the land might not necessarily welcome these necessary burns. And so for each of these two case studies that we just got a little bit of background on the Great Lakes in the U.S. and the sort of wool production uh, pastoralist system in the rangelands of Australia, the authors came up with some model inputs and other and relevant outputs as a method of quantification for the measurement of resilience in these systems um, and possibly sort of where they are located within the adaptive cycle. And they, again, this is a really nice table. I'd really recommend that if this is of any interest to you and you want to see sort of 
what I consider to be one of the most straightforward and almost basic methods of quantification of resilience. This table one in this paper is a really great example of that. So they basically break down the characteristics of the system into resilience of what, resilience to what, what they measured within this model. So within this, looking at the system, what do they believe they need to measure, like take, you know, numbers for basically in order to maintain whatever, maintain or create whatever stable state that they want within the system. And then they sort of break that down into biophysical field measures, the interpretation of those biophysical measures, socioeconomic field measures, and the interpretation of those socioeconomic measures. So just a really simple way that I think anyone can sort of conceptualize of the quantification of the resilience of these states. So in the example of the Lake District, they are trying to look at the resilience of the Clearwater State. So resilience of what? Resilience of the Clearwater State. Um, and its resilience to the short-term increase in phosphorus input due to weather or human disturbance. And so in order to do that, you'll see in the third line, measure and model, they measure the size of the basin of attraction, measured as distance between stable point and unstable threshold in units of basically water phosphorus concentration, so mass per volume. So basically they're saying how much uh, phosphorus can the system take in before it you know, does do that ball and cup model thing that mm. over the hump and fall into the turbid system. And then that mm. breaks it down a little bit more. So they're going to, for their biophysical field measure, they're going to be measuring soil phosphorus and mass per volume uh, or stock density. So animals in the area. So they give an additional option there as a method of measurement. And then for the interpretation of the biophysical measure, they say that it's directly related to the size of the per- perturbation and inversely related to the attractor size. So basically they are using, you know, a uh, variable that we're all really familiar with, which is how much phosphorus is in the system. You know, maybe not the most easy thing to measure, but a straightforward concept. And they are using that in order to sort of quantify the depths of the, you know, basins in that ball and cup model that we've uh, discussed pretty explicitly. And, you know, how much this system is able to take in before, you know, jumping over to a turbid state. So, sure. yeah. And so then they move into socioeconomic field measures, which I find really interesting. And they, in this particular case, they say that phosphorus pollution costs represented in the market. So they're saying that for something like this, sort of this negative externality of agricultural in the area, perhaps there should be a representation of phosphorus pollution in some sort of market system as a, yeah. So they bring that in as well. It's not just the biology. It's also the human and the money side of it, which I find to be very nice. And in their interpretation in this table of socioeconomic measures for this lake district, they talk about an incentive to stabilize soil phosphorus or decrease it if it's high. So there could be monetary incentives for sort of preventing this conversion of these clear lakes into the turbid states in order to preserve ecosystem services outside of strictly agriculture. So, and they do the same thing for the rangeland. I won't go through bit by bit, but this is just a really nice way, um, I think, as sort of an early attempt at trying to figure out exactly which variables relate to what it is you're trying to do in the resilience sphere. Very straightforward, very simple, very useful. And so in their final thoughts and challenges, they say that in these cases, in fact, in all cases, it's crucial to specify what system state is being considered, the resilience of what, and what ter- perturbations are of interest 
resilience to what. So they have basically these two terms that you can sort of use for your own system. So they really are combining that mental model and framework ideas we've talked about before, where you can just have these terms in your head. And when you're looking at a system that you're concerned about the resilience of, you're wondering where it does need to have the cycle, you can say, okay, this system that I care about, what, you know, what am I interested in being resilient to? <laughs> and, you know, what system do I want to maintain itself in? And then from there, move to figuring out what you need to measure in order to determine that. Um, they also note that resilience measures differ in important ways from ecological indicators, which is another term that you hear sort of in the ecology uh, literature. So first, resilience applies to the entire social ecological system, not just to the eco ecological subsystem. So basically to the humans as well as what we consider to be, you know, e you know the animals and, and the plants, whatnot. Right, um, right, right. Second, resilience focuses on variables that underlie the capacity of social ecological systems to provide ecosystem services, whereas other ecological indicators, at least at the time of this writing, mostly only address the current state of the system or service. So this just they use this language in order to provide sort of a fuller characterization to make sure that we are taking into account the humans in the system, the vegetation, the way everything is interconnected, which makes sense. They also have a number of conclusions in their work particularly on so-called slow variables. Um, but I think it's outside the scope of this particular episode. But if you are really interested in sort of the integration of slow and fast variables in the adaptive cycle and how that relates to sort of early quantification attempts, this is, again, is a great paper for that work. And that's really all I have for this sort of early look. I enjoy the simplicity of it. And it's fairly intuitive, I think, that if anyone was working with a system that they were concerned about, what state it was in and its resilience. This would probably be a first step that they would pretty naturally take uh, to sort of, you know, start measuring some of those key variables and I think they did a great job. Nice. I really like the idea of the resilience of what to what. Yes. Thinking about that, I think, is really fundamental to any sort of operationalizing resilience or quantifying resilience. You have to figure out exactly. what exactly you're quantifying. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you just otherwise there is that risk of just sort of you care about the system, so you got there and you measure everything, and without sort of a, a real intention as to why and to what you're trying to either cause to happen or prevent to happen. So it's that different of just like straight up ecological monitoring. This is a nice framework to have in mind if you're trying to move past just monitoring. Absolutely. If I'm a if I'm a land manager and I want to use resilience as a, some kind of a metric, some kind of a measurement, one of the important things I need to know is how do I define success? When one issue that pops up in resilience theory is, okay, you know, maybe I'm thinking about my system in this, in this way, thinking about resilience, but let's say I make some tweaks or do some management, how do I know if I was successful or not? Exactly. And yeah. Uh, that's actually something we're going to talk about in the next paper. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, what do you think about that segue? <laughs> uh, beautiful. Absolutely. Podcasting excellence. <laughs> awesome. Well, as Julie talked about, one important crucial step is to think about resilience of what and to resilience to what. That sentence wasn't grammatically correct, but we'll <laughs> roll with it. In our modern paper that we're going to talk about, we're looking at a framework for quantifying resilience to forest disturbance by Brian et al. And this was in 2019. I thought this was a really cool example of how we might quantify resilience and then enable land managers to apply the concept. I think 
um, even even in the the Carpenter article, which was a good over 20 years now, uh, they hadn't quite gotten to the point where land managers could say, all right, I know what I'm doing mm -hmm. if I want to take resilience and apply it to my particular land that I'm managing for Definitely. or ecosystem that I'm managing for. In this paper, the idea of resilience is specifically tailored to how the the forests in northern New Mexico uh, are resilient or not resilient. In this particular paper, the authors were interested in three different types of disturbances, fire, insects, and drought. So going back to that idea of resilience of what to what, the authors were interested in resilience of forests mm -hmm. and specifically two different types of forests. The they studied ponderosa pine forests, and they studied dry mixed conifer forests. They were interested in the resilience of those two forest types to fire, insects, and drought. So mm -hmm. those are our two, two forest systems. Those are the of what, and then the three disturbances, fire, nice. insects, and drought, are to what. Awesome. So the study took place in the Rio Tusas Lower San Antonio landscape. And uh, they, I, I just thought that this was a really cool example of how we might look at a specific interest for this case study. Mm -hmm. So the, the authors begin by distinguishing actually between resilience and resistance. They define resilience as a system's ability to experience disturbance and reorganize to essentially the same structure and function. It's a, a variation of a yeah. fairly standard definition for ecological resilience. And then they describe resistance as the influence of structure and composition on the severity of disturbance. They describe this as something of a short-term resilience. So the system's ability to withstand some kind of a heavy disturbance and still retain that structure and function, as opposed to the long-term resilience of its identity as a ponderosa pine forest or mixed conifer forest, which I thought was an interesting distinction um not, not don't necessarily agree with splitting up like that right i do i do understand why they did it mm -hmm. uh, focus of this paper is comparing the the short-term resilience aspects with the long-term resilience aspects and the authors were especially interested in a 35 40 year time frame for, okay. for some of this stuff looking forward the authors ultimately suggest using a bit of both resilience and resistance in combination. And that's the, a, a key thesis within this paper is uh, a forest is more likely to recover, as they say in the paper, as the same forest type following disturbance, that is resilience, if it has characteristics that limit the severity of the disturbance, that is resistance. In other words, resistance in this context is short-term resilience and implies minimal changes to stand structure, including species composition. The authors go on to say that uh, to effectively inform forest management, resilience must be contextualized in terms of the system and the disturbance type in question, which is actually a reference to the Carpenter oh. Hall <laughs> that Julie just covered. Oh, fantastic. That, that, that was a great callback that they, they cite to that article. And in this case, uh, the forest management in this study, the, the ponderosa pine and dry mix conifer forests, that is their, their area of interest for informing forest management that we, that we just talked about. Historically, the ponderosa pine in the area had a fire return interval of 3 to 14 years. So you would expect a, a fire 
at some point within that time frame. And the for the mixed conifer forests, that was a longer interval. They had about nine to 33 years of, mm-hmm. of a fire return interval. And this uh, changed with the policy shift to a policy of fire suppression with more grazing and logging. We've discussed that in the past as well. And the, the result of that has been a, a buildup in fuel load. And these resulting changes to ecosystem structure and species composition are creating increasing concern over these forest resilience. That was the, the key motivation for this particular study, looking at the, the resilience of these forests, both contemporary and then moving forward into the future. Furthermore, the, the land managers who are tasked with securing a steady float of different ecological services from the forests, they would benefit from a quantitative method of assess- assessing potential long-term resilience before a disturbance occurs to identify and prioritize areas at risk and allocate limited resources. And here they actually reference the Angler and Allen 2016 article that we talked about at the beginning of the episode. (laughs) Specifically the section that we were talking about as well with uh, how how can land managers benefit from using resilience and and quantifying resilience. And the, the authors of this paper assert that looking at some kind of quantitative method to say, well, resilience is, is high or low, where we need to prioritize this or that. That's, that's really key. So this study aimed to look at the short-term resilience. That's the, the way the authors describe resistance, but af- assess the forest type changes 35 to 40 years into the future. So that's the, the long-term resilience time scale. That's where they distinguish between the two. Authors were unable to find any previous studies that combined the indicators of short-term resilience to multiple disturbances to assess the possibility of a stand or a landscape being resilient to some suite of disturbances before an event has actually occurred. Mm -hmm. Most of the the studies on resilience and quantifying resilience have been retroactive. That's what kind of makes this study a little different. That's their ambition at any and the, again, as I mentioned before, but just as a refresh, the focus in this study was on fire, insects, and drought. Those are the three disturbances they're trying to, to assess. So without going too far down the proverbial rabbit hole, the authors used different forest characteristics to create indicators for fire resilience, insect resilience, and drought resilience. Mm. To score each forest stand's resilience to future disturbance, each indicator was worth one point. Forest stands were awarded one point for each indicator that contributed to resilience and zero points for each indicator that did not contribute to resilience. I'm talking about these indicators in pretty general terms because unsurprisingly, they were specifically tailored to this New Mexico study area where they were looking at the forest. So indicators could be canopy bulk density or canopy strata or topographic moisture potential. Pretty specific terms, uh, narrowly tailored, which I think is a really important point to make because when we talk about quantifying resilience, it's going to have to be adapted to the the local landscape that you're looking at. Yeah, that's yeah. That was I mean, my first paper was so much the same, right? In this case, if they were to make a more, you know, robust. Uh, model like this with multiple indicators. It wouldn't just be phosphorus, but it would be phosphorus and, you know, percent land cover that is agriculture surrounding the those given lakes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it does, Absolutely. as with everything in resilience, local knowledge beats all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very important. And I, I do think that this framework, however, could be applied. You could take the framework and apply it to to other ideas or other 
disciplines. Mm -hmm. you, know, you don't need to necessarily have it as a forest specific or forest in northern New Mexico specific. Right. You could take the same idea and apply it in other places. And this is the point where if anyone's interested in seeing the, a visual representation of the framework, I encourage looking at some of the figures in the paper itself. I think a, a visual representation is a lot more beneficial just for the purposes of describing the methods by which the authors used this. It also helps to demonstrate how you might take the framework, like the point assignments, for example, and apply it to other situations. But going back to the methods for the, for the authors here, uh, an area-weighted mean resilience score was calculated for each forest type. Again, that's the, the ponderosa and the mixed conifer. By weighting the overall resilience score of each sand by its portion of the area in each forest type. So not only did they look at a particular forest stand for some of these different indicators, they also weighed in how big of an area that forest stand occupies relative to, to other stands. So mm -hmm. um, for example, the ponderosa pine overall had a, a smaller area as opposed to the mixed conifer. So they wanted to, to keep that in mind as they were making these different measurements and calculating the resilience score for each of these stands. The resilience score itself was calculated for three independent data sets to collectively represent what the authors describe as treated versus untreated. So treated here means a, a forest stand that was treated to meet some kind of restoration objective. And restoration objectives are, are treatments to, make, uh, to meet a specific stand structure and species composition. So maybe they treated ponderosa pine to keep that stand as a ponderosa pine forest. Right, that's its desired state in, in their minds in this exactly. context, yeah. What, what the land managers are, are aiming for with management. So moving on to the results for this, uh, the, the authors found that under the, the no disturbance scenario, 31% of the stands across both types of forests showed a forest type conversion. So the ponderosa pine would shift to something else. The mixed, uh, dry mixed conifer would shift to something else. Over 75% of stands exhibited a forest type conversion under the fire scenario, leading to a low resilience score for that indicator. The combined area weighted mean resilience score so that's, that's all of the stands kind of combined resilience score for both the ponderosa pine and the dry mix conifer was 4.11 out of nine. So not exactly <laughs> a good resilience score. <laughs> dry mix conifer was more likely to be resilient to insects than ponderosa pine and ponderosa pine was more likely to be resilient to drought and fire resilience was about the same between the stands. In a more detailed breakdown of the data, the authors also describe how the untreated ponderosa pine had a one out of six possible <laughs> points for the resilience score, Goodness. whereas the treated ponderosa pine had a six out of seven points. Goodness. Okay. So the, the restoration treatments do make a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. And I like the simplicity of, of the, these very just in increments of one up to maybe seven point scale. That is, I'm, you know, I'm sure that there's something lost in the exactness there, but it seems like a great way, just looking at that, anyone could read that and go, oh, the treatments they're using really improve the resilience of these ponderosa pine uh, stands. Yes, I think the, the simplicity is, to some extent, I think the simplicity is a little shallow here. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a little more complex underneath than it is at the surface mm -hmm. um, because 
the the resilience scoring uses points uh, that are reflective of some pretty technical and complicated calculations. Um, And so the one through six or one through seven score doesn't necessarily reflect the the complexity of the specific indicators or what was used, the the calculations used to arrive at those indicators and to say whether this was resilient or not resilient. But as a, if I'm a, a manager and I'm just looking at finding some kind of a easy surface level calculation for for how I might assign resilience points, I, I do think it's it's pretty powerful. Yeah. And the 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 authors actually talk about this. They describe, and I'm, I'm quoting here, although a direct comparison of the resilience scores is not appropriate due to different insect disturbances and indicators, these scores may indicate that both forest types have a similar range of resilience in the research landscape currently. For the authors and managers of the New Mexico forests specifically, the authors also found that the effects of long-term changes in structure and composition in these forests are less in dry mixed conifer than in the ponderosa pine. In other words, the dry mixed conifer stands are ultimately more resilient to some of these changes they're dealing with in the ponderosa pine. The authors then go on to describe some implications for management. Again, I'm going to quote here, the changes in the overall scores for these two forest types in response to systematic indicator adjustments show that while both forest types may have a low potential for resilience in their current state, there is strong potential to be influenced by management. Mm-hmm. And you saw this reflected in that treated versus untreated finding we talked about earlier, where the, the treated areas had six out of seven resilience points, whereas the untreated areas had one out of seven points and demonstrated significantly less resilience by those indicators than the, the treated areas. The authors even describe why this study is important to management at different scales, which I found interesting, reflective of many of the things we've talked about here on the podcast, whether that's scale and heterogeneity or even panarchy. Right. And they look at management at the stand, landscape, and regional scale. At the stand scale, the manager can use this framework that they've developed, our resilience scoring system, to assess whether individual stands demonstrate resilience using forest characteristics that are routinely measured anyway. At the landscape scale, the framework allows managers to prioritize stands for treatment based on their resilience score, which I thought was a very interesting finding. And then finally, at the regional scale, refinement and further application of the framework can provide a consistent quantitative metric for tracking the progress of forest restoration and potential for these resilience uh, for these forest types. Fantastic. Yeah, I thought it was a very, very interesting, ambitious article on uh, how we might take something like resilience that people often use as that vague and ambiguous concept, uh, apply it directly and and come up with a way to quantify it and create a scoring system that land managers can directly use in their exactly. day-to-day work. Yeah, and then at its core, it's so sim- so easy to interpret. Because like it is interesting, we chose... So mine was quite simple, right? It was, you know, one or two metrics, just something that, you need, you know, it's quite obvious to measure based on your knowledge of the system and what state you want to be in. This is just a slight extension of that, incorporating a bit more information and then integrating it into an even... It's really distilling it into a um, the most user-friendly package ever, which I really appreciate because what's the point of resilience if no one 
can use it practically in any in any form. So let th- let this episode be an example of how uh, quantifying resilience doesn't have to be the most complicated thing in the world, which I think some <laughs> some papers would have it appear to be. And I think that's fine for researchers and academics who Absolutely. are looking to do research on on quantifying resilience. But for the the land managers who are looking to take resilience as a concept and apply it to their management, you know, whether that's creating a management plan or making decisions on you know what areas to treat, that that resilience scoring concept I think is is really useful. Is it necessarily a useful like research and academic concept not necessarily but i I think that from a pragmatic or or practical perspective i I think it's a potentially powerful tool that's great well as always julie (laughs) let's wrap this up with some resilience in the news yeah i can i can start so when i was first looking around the news to see what i want to talk about this week i was first going to do this article about how the sort of rebuilt New Orleans levees saved lives and property in Hurricane Ida, you know, a a year or so back. But then I got an email from someone on one of my research teams uh, about a new policy through the Biden administration where they had, it says, the Biden administration announces plan to spend billions to to prevent wildfires. And it's by Alyssa uh, Lookpat in the New York Times. Um, I thought it was interesting because it sort of touches on my research in my PhD, uh, but also just sort of a change of a very ambitious change of policy uh, mm. within the U.S. government uh, on the sort of wildfire. You, we've all seen the catastrophic wildfires going on recently. So for sure. Yeah. Basically, they say that after a year that included one of the largest wildfires in California history and ended with that unseasonably late blaze that became the most destructive ever in Colorado, which is about 45 minutes away from me, where a thousand homes in Boulder were absolutely decimated. Um, the Biden administration last Tuesday announced a 10 year multi-billion dollar plan to reduce the fire risk on up to 50 million acres that border vulnerable communities. So basically the agriculture department sent a statement that they're going to take measures to reduce the danger of these big catastrophic, crazy wildfires we've been seeing um, in dozens of spots in 11 different Western U S states. And they plan to do so by thinning overgrown trees and by using controlled burns to get rid of dead vegetation. So I, I like, this is interesting for a couple of reasons. A is that we have to do something, right? These catastrophic wildfires are costing the U.S. and individuals and insurance companies simply billions of dollars more frequently yeah, now sure. than ever. Um, and it's a policy issue and it's everything. But, and, and so they, but they are doing so not by, you know, stationing, firefighters every 20 feet in these areas to put out every fire that every come that ever comes up ever you know we haven't gone quite back into this sort of Smokey the bear only you can prevent wildfire era not quite instead they're mm-hmm. saying okay we understand we do need some burns we've really messed up this policy we're going to deploy controlled burns and some some thinning and things like that in order to sort of build the resiliency systems in order to prevent these catastrophic wildfires that um are not, have not historically been this way. This is not a prevention of the good fire, a prevention of the bad fire, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> um, they, they, they do note, I think a better way to say it is basically that the number of fires each year in the Western United States has remained fairly consistent. 
uh, in the past decade, but what has changed is their scale. So they're getting bigger mm. and scarier and more costly and more deadly. So that's a good way to put it. They don't want to eliminate all fires. They want to eliminate some of these particularly bonkers ones. <laughs> but it was interesting, something that they noted in this in this article. You know, so that, that all sounds great. I haven't looked into, you know, the the great details of it. I couldn't tell you exactly whether what they plan to do is, you know, wonderfully scientifically sound or not. But they do talk to some sort of experts uh, in these, this area, in this New York Times article, including uh, Michael Wara, who is the director of climate and energy policy program at Stanford. Um, and he said that he's worried that the agency has taken on an enormous challenge, basically that they don't have the money to complete. He worries that the Forest Service is overcommitting it, itself. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see whether the U.S. really has the infrastructure uh, to sort of do what they believe needs to be done here in order to increase the resilience of these sort of Western uh, fire systems. Um, but Dr. War says that if the plan succeeds, the fire seasons could be far less catastrophic. Um, and Mr. Velsack is a, an individual at the Forest Service, also says that they plan to prioritize the most vulnerable areas first in these planning, in this in their deployment of these methods. And they also hope to work with private landowners and Native American tribes, and basically noting that in the past, the Agriculture Department, Department of Agriculture, and other you know, US government agencies haven't really paid attention to underserved communities or the communities themselves that sort of border these you know, catastrophic natural events um, and would hope to sort of reprioritize this time. So they plan to do it in sort of a paying attention to the communities they're gonna be working with, as well as addressing the most sort of vulnerable, highest risk areas first. So that seems like a method to possibly reduce some of that overcommitment, but <laughs> we'll see, we'll see. Have you so heard anything, anything about this? I've heard a little bit. I haven't yeah. heard this entire, this plan here that you've just talked about. Yeah. I, I do know that there was interest in committing more money to reducing wildfire vulnerability and yeah. all this stuff. It's going to be a, an uphill battle for sure. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing more robust and, you know, analyses of, of whether what they're doing is in line with what other, you know, forest managers would believed to be best and you know some of the scientific studies that come out of this we'll see the before and after but i hope it's i hope it succeeds and i hope that they build more resilient western forests for sure well speaking of resilient western <laughs> forests oh it's a nice follow-up to my article <laughs> beautiful which is just what is a resilient forest anyway okay. it's almost as if they copied that off of our podcast title i don't yeah, know for, yeah for real Anyway, this is from Kat Kirtland at fizz.org, and the article describes a study on the Sierra Nevada forests in California. And the study authors, just like us, first ask, what does resilience even mean? And the article points out that it can be vague and, and difficult to quantify. <laughs> it's maybe our theme for the day. <laughs> and authors of of the study have defined it as a measure of the forest's adaptability to a range of stresses and reflects the functional integrity of the ecosystem. Hmm. I think that's starting to stray a little bit from the core ecological resilience definition, but I can work with it. Describe it that the article also describes both resilience and resistance, which mm -hmm. I thought was interesting. Maybe the, the authors of this study had 
looked at the study yeah, that we just described from Brian Dodd at all 2019. And per, per the article, they described for fire adapted forests in the Sierra, managing for resilience requires drastically reducing densities, as much as 80% of trees in some cases. The study compared historical and contemporary forest conditions, and in 100 years, tree density increased six to seven fold, while the average tree size was reduced by half. Hmm. So in other words, there are way more trees in Sierra Nevada than there was 100 years ago or, or more. And that's because of the frequent low burning fires that would clear out some of the smaller uh, trees. Yes, yes, a lot the bigger older, trees. Yeah. So there's a lot older, bigger trees with more space to grow than there is now. Yeah. I find this interesting in kind of really more of a societal context where we, we think of these dense forests in places like this here in Nevada as these, you know, we picture them in our head as a sort of ideal natural environment or untrammeled wilderness, right? Uh, but they aren't really natural at all or the mm -hmm. product of policy decisions from 100 plus years ago. Of course. And, and all that fuel density is, of course, what's causing these really intense wildfires. It's not the only factor, impact factor in there, of course, but uh, it's definitely a really major driving one. It's just a reminder that we've impacted these ecosystems in the past and, and we continue to do so, whether it's by you know, managing as we have or, or flipping to what the Biden administration just proposed, as right. Julie just talked about. It's a, it's a social and ecological system. <laughs> and heavily policy driven. And it also, something that this makes me think about is if someone, you know, our age, who is not 100 years old, walked into these forests that they're talking about in this article, and we saw them as dense, you know, with, with all of these trees, we'd probably go, this seems like a healthy forest, and it's That's probably really always nice. had this many trees, and this is probably, quote-unquote, natural, as opposed, you know, this is probably how it evolved, how it's always been. And then here we see, no, it's, it's, it is indeed heavily modified, even if it's not, in and in, we didn't clear-cut it, we did sort of the opposite, but still human modification. Absolutely. Um, we, we've seen other examples of that, too. There's... I cannot think of the exact context. There's a pretty famous one on along the, the East Coast. Um, mm -hmm. People will like hike through the Appalachian Mountains and, and a few other places where you have these really nice trees and then um, different plants kind of spread out on the forest floor. And, mm -hmm. and people really like the, the intermix and it just feels like really comfortable being natural environment. Right. And <laughs> one of the most dominant plants spread out through the forest floor is actually an invasive species. Ah, good. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it could be made. It's kudzu, the vine that ate the South. Probably no one would find that pretty, though. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It definitely wasn't kudzu, or I would have remembered. I just can't uh, think of the species. That's funny. Oh, cool. Love that. Uh, lot, yeah. Wow. What a lot of similar language in there. That's very neat. It is very. I am. I'm pretty sure they must have cited frequently to the Brian et al. article. Yeah, that's, I, that I, I have not had the opportunity to read this this new study. It just came out. I didn't even see it when I was looking through articles. So oh, cool. I don't know if it's available yet, but um, I did find it quite, quite funny how closely some of the language was. Fantastic. Well, uh, we're back doing some recording. And thanks for chatting today, Connor, and talking about quantifying resilience. Well, thank you, too. Good luck with the new <laughs> uh, PhD program and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, it's already killing me a little bit, but we're back at it. It'll be fun. I'm excited. 
Uh, and thank you, listeners. And you have been listening to What the Heck is Resilience Anyway, WHRA. And Thanks see so you, much. Yeah, see you next month. Bye.